For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning. Singyu, thank you for hosting today and thank you everyone for being here. I'm happy to be with you on this very, very chilly um, February morning. My name is Asia Nancy Easton, and I want to talk to you today. Can everyone hear me? Okay, great, thanks. I want to talk to you today about, um, well, part of a teaching that I just heard and, and completed some study with. I actually just completed an online January intensive studying the Lotus Sutra for three weeks with Tension Reb Anderson at Green Gulch Farm, I, although I was here and, and everyone attending was in their Zoom world. And I want to first express so much gratitude for the practice that everyone who was attending this um, put in over the three weeks and, and all of the teaching. I want to talk today about a story from the Lotus Sutra and actually a chapter from the Lotus Sutra, chapter four, which is a parable that's similar to our Western prodigal son story, but, but different and um, with a, with a, in, a, in important ways. But I want to start off with just a few key facts. Um, about the Lotus Sutra in particular. Uh, the Lotus Sutra was, was written down uh, in stages between about 100 years before the Common Era to about 150 years of the Common Era. And, but it was being taught much before then, and actually it was, was being taught by, by Shakyamuni Buddha. You know, a sutra means... The, it's referring to the teaching or the words of Buddha. So uh, the Lotus Sutra was handed down orally for maybe about 500 years, 400 years um, before being written down. And the Lotus Sutra is unique because it teaches Mahayana Buddhism for the first time. And so that's radically different from what was being taught by Buddha and, and, and what we know from, you know, kind of our, our own historical teachings 
from, from before that. So before that, some of the earliest teachings of Buddha are on the, the topic of nirvana um, being or extinction, which was being taught and thought of as a personal phenomenon, that nirvana actually means um, quenching or, or release from, from the suffering of, of samadhi or, or, or samsara or from our lives. Um, but, but now, in the Lotus Sutra, Buddha starts teaching about the great awakening of everyone and everything that, um, you know, in, in the Lotus Sutra, Buddha is teaching that delusion and awakening meet in our lives and that together we can realize what is really inaccessible to our own limited sphere of awareness, that this goes beyond personal nirvana by bringing awakening to not a person, but to activity, enlightened activity, and, and enlightened discourse and conversation in the world, so that um, so that we realize this together. And you could think about this as going from two dimensions to three dimensions. You know, with our with one eye, we can see two dimensions. We can see, you know. I guess this way and this way, but with two eyes, we have binocular vision and we can see things in space because both eyes are informing each other. And, and I think that that's a nice analogy for, for this kind of awakening. So other, up, prior to chapter four, we learn a number of things in the Lotus Sutra, one of which is that Buddha's wisdom is really nothing other than teaching others and being taught by others that everyone has Buddha nature, which means really the inherent capacity to be awake. And so when part of the world, you know, that is encapsulated in, in ourselves wakes up, everything wakes up around us. And when everything is awake around us, it can be teaching us so that we can also be awake. So, Buddha go, predicts already in the Lotus Sutra that, that many, many beings will um, become Buddhas in the future. And, but Buddhas don't all have to be the same, you know? And we know this from our lives, that everyone has their own position. And, and we later can refer to this as, the, as our Dharma position. Everyone has their own perspective. And it's when we bring these perspectives together that we can be awake. Um, but... Buddhists have only one teaching, which is to wake up to Buddha's wisdom, and they teach it differently for each person using skillful means. We, For those of you who are familiar with the paramitas, one is skillful means, which is just the ability to be um, tactful and apt and, and appropriate to different circumstances or situations. And so, um, you know, our we can use whatever we have at hand to teach and by accordingly everything is teaching us all all at once dogen talks about this in his writing yobutsu yobutsu which is you know you've heard probably only buddha together with buddha can realize dharma 
Um, you know, Buddha Dharma cannot be known by any one person. It is only something that arises together. And that is one of the key teachings of the Mahayana, that um, everything is awakening together and, and bodhisattvas, uh, these wisdom beings are coming and helping everyone to awaken and, and we can all be bodhisattvas for each other, but all beings can be bodhisattvas for us too. So that's kind of the leading up to and, and also circling around chapter four. Um, and so chapter four, well, in the Lotus Sutra in general, Buddha is offering many, many predictions about others' future Buddhahood, starting with Shariputra in, in an earlier chapter. And Shariputra is overjoyed. And then right after this, there are four great leaders, Sabuti, Maha Katyayana, Maha Kashapa, Buddha's, six, Buddha's known successor, and Maha Madgalyayana all get up and they exclaim with joy because they previously thought that they could only attain nirvana, which is the cessation of craving for things, the cessation of grasping. They, never, they, they say that we never believed in what you're teaching us now, which is Anyutara Samyak Sambodhi, unsurpassed, complete, perfect awakening. And they, in their joy, they tell this story. They tell a story about, and this is, this is the majority of, of the content of chapter four. So the story it involves a young man who leaves his father at and runs away and, and probably is not fully mature, isn't fully ready to take care of himself. But he runs away to another country where he becomes poor and possibly somewhat deranged. You know, his, his life is reduced to just foraging for food and clothing. And he's um, living just a very, very challenging existence and is consumed with, you know, fear and, fear for his life most of the time. Um, meanwhile, after he runs away, the father searches for his son for a while, but eventually has to give up because he moved to another place where he becomes very, very wealthy, extremely wealthy, and is one of the main figures in, in this realm. So the son wanders for years, just kind of lost, um, trying to just sustain himself. He wanders into this city where the father has actually settled, but he doesn't recognize him. He he doesn't, I, I, you know, I don't know, but, but the father does recognize his son. He sees him and he, and he instantly recognizes, oh, this is my son. And so, of course, you know, the father sends men out to try to bring his son back, but this actually scares his son. The son believes that he is being arrested for something and he's afraid he's going to be punished or put to death. And he's like, let me go. I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything wrong. And so the father instructs the men to let him go, recognizing his just deranged state of mind. Um, but the, the father then sets up a device, a very skillful device. He sends out men and instructs them to go to his son and 
see if they can hire him as a laborer. So they, they do this and they talk with the son and they say, you know, we'll, we'll give you double pay. You know, it's a great job. We're, we'll work right beside you. It's, it's, it's really a great place. So the son agrees and he works for, I don't know, you know, 20 years, maybe shoveling dung in the stable of the father's estate. Because this is all the son can tolerate right now. I mean, if, if, the, the father recognizes the son couldn't just suddenly move into, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm your father, you're my son, we can, we can have this life together. So the father, the father allows us to go on. And one day when the son has been working for a while, the father dresses down in coarse clothes and, and kind of, you know, puts dirt on his face and he visits the son and he tells him he's he's kind of the boss man, and he offers him a raise. He says, you know, I can see that you are a conscientious hard worker, more so than than these other guys. Um, I'm going to give you a raise, and he, and I'm going to give you some perks. He offers him, you know, some bowls and utensils of his own, lots of food. He has his own assistant, and says, oh, you know, you you're such a good worker. You're like a son to me. And the son says, you know, he can tolerate that. He can tolerate being a, like a son. Um, and so he, he goes on like this. So, he, so the son becomes the father's trusted assistant. And he is ready for this. He's ready to take on this job. And he, he does this job really well. Um, he becomes increasingly able to, you know, negotiate and handle the affairs of the of the estate. And so after a while of this, I don't know exactly how long, maybe 10 years, 10 more years, the father recognizes that he is getting old and he is going to die one day and that day might be soon. So he decides to call the son to him and, and, you know, the son who is still his employee and he gives him more wealth. He puts him really fully in charge of his affairs. And he says, you know, you and I, we're of the same mind. And so he, the son says, okay, he, you know, I, I can see that. We, we are of the same mind. And so, so he, he has the son handling all his affairs. And the son is able, to, in his place, and the son is able to tolerate this. Um, and then one day, not so long after this, the father can see that the son is really ready to know who he is. And so he calls an assembly among his relatives, kings, ministers, everyone in the kingdom to reveal his son's true identity as his true son. He calls him by his name. He tells him his, you know, his own name. The son remembers. He gives him his inheritance. And the son is overjoyed. He, he finally realizes, oh, yes, this is my father. And like, how amazing that without any effort on my part, these treasures now come to me. So this is the story. And this is how these four leaders have been thinking about Buddha's predictions of future Buddhahood for the assembly, that they can see that they actually have been working very hard. Um, they real and they realize that Buddha has been teaching them using skillful means because they sought personal nirvana. That is what Buddha has been teaching them. That was what they could tolerate. 
they couldn't tolerate um, and weren't ready for, knowing right then that they are the same as Buddha and that they are Buddha. Um, they recognized that if they had had a mind to pursue the great teaching, Buddha would have given them the great vehicle law, um, which would be unsurpassed, complete, perfect awakening. But they, but they recognized that they weren't ready. So this is, this is important because prior to the Lotus Sutra, people had been practicing um, just, well, not waking up, but finding an extinction for craving. And, um, and that is what nirvana means. There is, there is work involved in awakening, and, um, and I'll get into that in a minute. But I want to just talk about what the difference is really between personal nirvana and anuttara samyak sambodhi. So nirvana, as I said, means t- technically blowing out um, or quenching. And that represents liberation from repeated birth in samsara. Samsara is, as we know, the beginningless cycle of birth and death and mundane existence pervaded by dukkha, which means unsatisfactoriness or suffering or things being out of whack. So um, previously, Buddhist followers were trying to practice um, getting getting out of samsara. Um, finding, a, finding a way to be released from samsara and released from this con- constant cycle. And now they're learning that actually they, they don't have to be released from suffering. They can actually be liberated within their suffering. That, that, that samsara and nirvana are one. They're, they're, you can, you, they, they interpenetrate each other. So for in Anyutara Samyak Sambodhi, which is unsurpassed, complete, perfect enlightenment, this is Buddha's great awakening. It's the, the under, they, they now understand that awakening is inherent in everything as Buddha nature. We, we have heard about Buddha nature before. And, and that it can't be realized by any one person alone, only Buddha together with Buddha. So everything is awake and can teach us. And we are constantly teaching and being taught. We're constantly mutually influencing everything around us. So on the one hand, the sutra teaches us that we are all Buddha, but also that we're all not always ready to realize it. So this is, this is something I'm always struck by this, I guess. Um, the sutra talks about predictions of future Buddhahood. And we could ask ourselves, you know, when? Like, when in the future? I think, and I, and I think for many of us, my, myself included, we can, we can think like, okay, yeah, sure. You know, I'll, I'll, maybe, you know, maybe in the future, like in some distant, distant, far off time when I have, become a better person and I've extinguished all my craving and you know maybe that's true or maybe it's right around the corner but whatever it is it's something that we can't hold on to right now you know and and then the other question is 
why does the father give the son work to do? You know, why, why do we, why do we have to work? Why does Buddha give us work? You know, in, in our, in our practice life, maybe, you know, we, we work with Zazen and we, we practice Zazen. We have maybe some temple training positions. We engage in study. Why do we have to work? You know, if we, if we know that from the beginning we have Buddha nature, then why do we have to work? You know, what, what is that about? We maybe know, you maybe have heard the story of Mazu and Nanyue, who Mazu is sitting, practicing Zazen, and, and uh, Nanyue comes up to him and says, you know, what are you doing? And, and Mazu says, I'm, becoming a, I'm trying to become a Buddha. And so Nanyue picks up a tile and he starts polishing it. And, and Mazu says, what are you doing? You know, why, why are you polishing a tile? And, and Nanyue says, well, I'm making a mirror. And Mazu says, well, you can't make a mirror by polishing a tile. And Nanyue says, well, you can't become Buddha by sitting. You, you can't. And so we know that practicing Zazen doesn't lead to becoming a Buddha, but like Mazu, we can look to some future sign that signals that, you know, our practice isn't complete. You know, we can hope that the future will bring something better than what we have right now and that will be better and will it will all be great. So that is how we can think. And I want to suggest a couple of key points. One is that we don't work right now to achieve some result later. There, there are some schools of Zen even that kind of, you know, teach that, that we're, we're working on something. But, but actually, um, what we understand in Soto Zen is that we practice now to wake up right now. You know, Dogen in particular talks about practice and realization as being one. We, we practice as the expression of our Buddha nature, you know, although, so, so things are available to us right now. However awake you are in any one moment, that's, that's how awake you are. You know, we, when we, when you practice, it's, it's right there. Another point is that although the Lotus Sutra says we possess Buddha's wisdom, we don't see it. So it may be more accurate to think of this as potential, as Buddha nature. We, we do actually need to work to realize our potential, but we realize it now. So we, you know, we have a, we have responsibility is, is maybe the point. We, it's, it's not so much that we're working on something in the future, but we have responsibility right now. Um, you know, we have responsibility to see Buddha or Buddha nature in everything and everyone. We can't just act however we want. Um, you know, we, we, we need to really think about our actions and, and try and, and think about how we can act skillfully so that we can respond to Buddha in, in everything and everyone and, and allow ourselves to be taught 
by the wisdom that is in everything. So we have, um, you know, to guide us, we have our bodhisattva precepts, we have our paramitas to guide us, which are sort of transcendent practices, and we have wholesome kinds of activities. And when I say wholesome, I mean wholesome in the sense of healing, activities that can heal and that can bring the parts of, of ourselves and others more in line with the whole. So all of this is right here and it's right now and it's inherent in any given moment. Our life is just continually handing us things. And this is skillful means. We, we, it hands us sometimes, sometimes wonderful things, sometimes things that we want to hold on to really tightly and, and never let go of. And sometimes things that we would really rather not have. But we, in order to practice, we, re- we really need to just practice with holding on to those things very lightly. You know, each, each activity, each event, each person that comes to us is an opportunity to practice Buddha meeting Buddha. You know, how can we see this situation and respond skillfully and appropriately and as, as you know, responding to the Buddha that, that is in that situation so that we can wake up in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our joy. It's not a, we're not getting out of the situation and we're not, um, we're not necessarily we're not we're not setting out to try to improve ourselves or the situation. We just try to wake up in the middle of our suffering and our joy to Buddha's wisdom. So, so the, my third and final key point is about the need to practice. You know, we we can think that we're going to have maybe an aha moment, you know, where, where I think this is, this is what, something that I certainly thought at one time, which was, you know, we're going to you wake up and suddenly it's like, Oh, I get it. You know, I get everything and, and nothing ever, nothing ever really bothers me or, or affects me ever again. And that, I, that I don't think is realistic. You know, we awakening is not a one and done kind of event. It's something that we have to do over and over and over. We wake up every moment. This is this is Buddha going beyond Buddha to whatever it was that happened in that last moment. Now we're, we're presented with a fresh moment. Similarly, time does impact the quality of our awakening. Being awake, it's not something that you can cram for. It's something that you have to live out. You, you, there's, no, there's not like a fast track. You know, we, we practice and we, and we just, we apply ourselves. I, uh, when I think about this, I am remembering a couple of years ago, I went to physical therapy for a problem with my hip. And, and it would, at the beginning of every session, they would have me, um, you ride like ride a you know a recumbent bike for five minutes just to warm up my legs and hips and everything. And I would start off and I and I would think like okay I'm, I'm you know and I would I, I would try to this is my overachiever self I would try to um, get my like a certain number of cycles per minute and or yeah cycles cycles per minute and. Um, maintain this certain speed level. And then I'd be trying to push myself to go a little further and I'd catch myself 
every single time and sometimes more than once in a, in a five minute session, because what I was trying to do was there was something in the back of my mind that thought, you know, if I just ride a little faster than this, then, then I'll be, I'll be done sooner. And, and I had to keep reminding myself, you know, no, it really doesn't matter how fast you go because you have to do this for five minutes. So I think, I think our practice can be similar in that way that we, we think that, you know, I'll, I'll do more and I'll try harder and I'll, I'll push myself more. And that's, I think, not it. You know, we, we just, we just have to show up. We, we show up moment to moment, day to day. And as we continue to try to practice being awake, that, that does become more of who we are, more of the time. You know, our, our awakening is directly related. The quality of our awakening is directly related to our practice of it in zazen and in our daily lives. So even though we are not practicing to become a future Buddha, we still have to practice in order to continue to wake up. And, and because practice and realization are one, we have to continue to enact our practice in our lives. And this is the way in which we, um, you know, realize or make real the potential of our Buddha nature. So I think that's all I want to say for, for the time being. Um, maybe we could have a little bit of a conversation and maybe among, maybe among the however many, maybe among, among the 31 of us, we can uh, have Buddha meeting Buddha. So thank you, Bodhisattvas. Um, I'm going to maybe, uh, okay. I think, Sing, you go ahead. Were you going to let people know how they could raise their hand? Uh, I, I was about to ask a question, but everybody, uh, you can, uh, click on participants and there will be a raise hand function or actually, uh, if you are a newer version, perhaps in reactions, there is a raise hand, uh, function as well. And, uh, I'll keep a an eye on that. And I have a question or comment about Thank you. Uh, what you said. I I was so fascinated by the story uh, because I I feel like normally the stories I hear in Buddhism are like so esoteric, but this one feels like very real. It feels like a uh, yeah, it feels like a really real story. And the question you brought up about why does the student need to work or I mean, why does the son need to work is very interesting to me. And um, like just by the story, it seems that by as the son works, uh, he starts to actually behave like a son, even though he doesn't know he is a son. He, he is the son. And I feel like that some, sounds kind of like practice we we try to imitate what uh, i don't know like buddha or buddha nature perhaps until one day we realize oh all, all along we have, we are already there but we wouldn't have been able to accept that uh had we not worked uh it feels like as if we do all the work to just 
convince ourselves that we deserve it. <laughs> and uh, it is just quite interesting. And I, I really like the story. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think, you know, I still have a little bit of a question about that, but I like the way that you describe it, that he, by his work, he actually become you know, becomes the son and, and has, takes on some knowledge and, and training that he didn't have before um, in order to realize who he is. Um, before we move off of that question, though, would anyone like to comment about that? Why, why does the sun have to work? Is that, Jokai, do you want to, I know you have a question, but maybe you are going to say something about this too. Maybe, maybe he doesn't believe that he's the son. He doesn't have that, that sort of faith that, that he is, in fact, the son of the owner of the factory or the shop. Yeah, I think we, we can be this way a little bit. We can be like, you know, how could I possibly be the um, son of a very wealthy man when I, I'm just foraging for my existence? He's, we get so... Um, we can feel kind of unworthy, you know, we get clouded by our day-to-day activities and, and we know that we have maybe not always been so skillful. And so maybe part of what happens is the son needs to learn how to be skillful. Any other thoughts? Kathy. That you um, that there there's a part of this where the son is going through some self exploration, and almost there's a sense that some of it has to come from his own initiation. That if he were to just accept that his father is wealthy, there's uh, an acceptance. It's a passive sort of role, you know. And I wonder if you know part of it is that there needs to be striving. There needs to be it's part of the motivation to um, yeah that that's you know that highlights some maybe a key point too is that he he it would be a passive it would be someone else's wealth and not his own wealth he had to he has to find the ability to be skillful with that within himself and and maybe that's that's true for us too we have to we have to see that we can um manage this responsibility. Thanks. Um, so Jokai, I think you are the next person. Yeah. I wanted to ask about um, the role of like faith in, in this story and the line between trusting your teachers and yourself as the Buddha and kind of accepting our own kind of fallibility or, or humanity. Well, we have, I think that's, I think that's a really important point. And I'm trying to think of what I could say about that, that would be skillful. Um, We... We know that we are all fallible. 
and so is everybody else. And yet, we also trust that we are trying to wake up together, and maybe that is um, that is one of the particular um, key factors of a spiritual a community of a sangha, really, or, or a community of spiritual friends, is that we we trust that everyone is participating because they're trying to wake up together, and yet no one will always be skillful in everything. And, um, and I think maybe that's, that's another component of trust too, is that we trust that when we or someone else isn't skillful, that we'll be open to feedback and, and, and we'll be able to you know, receive and process feedback about that. About our about our lack of skill, and that we'll be able to give feedback and and have it be taken well, and sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes um, sometimes we do have people break our trust, and we and that might take a long long time to repair. You know, that's those are things that don't always get repaired even in our own lifetime. And yet, I think the, the principle is that we should be able to, um, to do that work and, and we need to be able to do that work. Does that, does that start to address what you're, what you're raising? I, I'm, I'm is there a link between faith and skillfulness, you know? Is it, is it something that, skillfulness seems like something you need to develop, but faith is like almost, I don't know, I, I don't even know what faith is really. I think trust, but I don't know if that's necessarily, you know, what it means. Well, I, I think faith has a lot in common with trust. Um, trust, faith, Faith maybe is even more um, amorphous than trust. You know, we think of, I think when we think of trust, we think of trust in something or someone or a principle. And um, faith seems like it, it's less directive or directed of a, of a principle. Um, faith, I think, depends on trust. Or, well, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Maybe maybe this is another question that uh, other people have a different perspective on. But I do think that faith and trust are related. Anybody have a thought about this? I don't mean to crowdsource my talk, but uh, I do think that this can be an opportunity for us to share different perspectives. Well, if we're all waking up together, we should crowdsource, right? <laughs> right? I'll have to think about what the difference is between crowdsourcing and all of us waking up together. 
but thank you for a good question, Jokai. I th and I think that that is, you know, maybe maybe what's most important for me to say about that is I think that that is something to continue to practice with, that to practice with that question, um, along with along with you know the previous question of why why do we work? Why do we have to continue to work to wake up? Thank you. Um, it looks like Nicholas may be next in my list. Hi. Hi, Nicholas. Uh, thanks for talking about the Lotus Sutra. I've been listening to a bunch of talks on the Lotus Sutra for the past several months. And, um, you know, this idea about faith that you're talking about is what I, I was thinking is that, uh, you know, skill, unskillfulness is part of awakening, is awakening. You know, that the Lotus Sutra, in a way, what I'm taking from it is that it's, it, it includes everything. You know, it's, so it's really about this uh, awakening from this dream of separation. Um, and so that there's no so unskillfulness is just another thing you know it's it's um and as you said that uh nirvana samsara two sides of the same coin so you know we kind of or i kind of live in this um uh world where everything has two points you know and a and a b switch um binary um so it's kind of like the lotus sutra sutra is very non-binary in its teaching in that sense that that it that it includes all things you know eventually <clears throat> in this very sort of uh magical and and mythological way and um I also was thinking a lot about the Wizard of Oz when you were speaking and and that that's could be a teaching in one of the stories in the Lotus Sutra that, you know, that, you know, why did Dorothy have to go on a journey, you know, because she did. Why do I have to go on a journey? Because I did. So in this this quest for enlightenment in, in a way is a trick. I think you alluded to that in your talk, too, like like there's that there's some place to get to. You know, and so. Uh, what it's um, allowed me to kind of experience as I'm sitting zazen recently is 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 beyond that. You know, it's it's like touching into that place right here, right now. That you know that is awake and um, having a deeper sense of that. That it's yeah, I have a journey. Yeah, I have unskillful things that I do, I have all these stories in my head that are terribly unskillful. But I do also have moments now where I sort of feel like I'm transcending that and really in touch with the deathless, uh, the emptiness more and more. And that's, um, and that's kind of what I've uh, been getting out of the Lotus Sutra. And and just one more thing is that I, I, you know, 
I think I've more that I'm more connected to the Lotus Sutra unconsciously than I even think I am. And this just came up recently. And it's that the, you know, I learned in uh, New York City living at the West Side Y in 1989 had a chant, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, excuse me, um, which I've learned is the, I guess the distillation of the Lotus Sutra teaching. And it's something that I've on and off been practicing for, you know, over 30 years. So that was, so yeah, the, for me, this, this teaching is, is, you know, vast and deep and it's amazing. And I feel like I'm just, you know, scratching the surface. So thank you for talking about it today. Thank you. You know, I think that's that's a really important point. Um, a couple of important points about the the feeling that I had coming away from this um, intensive was really that the Lotus Lotus Sutra is such a great and deep just description of our world. It, it's it, in ways that I don't understand fully, it is just such a full description of the world and, of, and, and how things work. And like you're saying, I, I think that, you know, the, the longer you, more you put into it, the more you will get out of it. And the longer you, you, you study, the more there is. Um, but so, so your, your point about unskillfulness being, a thing I think is is also huge, and it's that's that's one that I can tend to forget, and and maybe maybe many of us forget that that it's it's just a thing that is happening, and we can, um, you know, we can wake up within that, and that's maybe what you know what practice is about, and what sangha is about really is is just the commitment, the 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 desire and the commitment to continue to be present and practice and wake up with things. And, and maybe that's, maybe that's an answer for a couple other, other, other questions. So thank you so much for your comments on that. I'm going to move on in the sake of time. I'm just, Oh, okay. It's, uh, it's not later than I thought it's actually earlier. Um, so great. We have lots of time. Um, David and Christopher, I think you were next. Thank you. Thank you so much, Haitian, for your talk. Um, I've never gotten all the way through the, the Lotus Sutra, but that's the, the chapter you talked about is one that I, one that I did read. And um, can you hear me okay? I have this the weird kind of muffling. Okay, um, I'm just holding closer so that you can hear the sound. Um, so when I, when I first read it, I thought that this chapter was really throwing shade on, you know, Theravada or Hinayana, saying, oh, Hinayana personal practice is really just like shoveling dung. Uh, but, and, and maybe that's part of it, but, but I love the way that you, uh, I don't know, br- sort of brought out the beautiful psychological focus on the sun. And now I'm thinking more about the sun, like, wow, the sun ran away from home. The sun experienced some kind of crisis and the sun is living with some kind of core wound. You know, Xingyu said it so well that like, 
he doesn't think he's deserving or he doesn't really think he is the heir to the Buddha nature that he already is. And then in the story, he is the heir. He's living in the house. He's doing all the things the son does. It's just that he can't bear, he can't bear the knowledge that he really is the thing that he, that he already is. And I'm sure you experienced this Asian, you know, being in the, in the healing profession, um, I think a lot of us experience it. I think everybody has some kind of core wound. You know, I used to think, oh, maybe it's Christianity's fault. Maybe it's because of my sexuality that I have this thought that I'm not okay. But no, I think, I, I, I think it's, it, it's, it's either universal or close to it. And I'm amazed that this sutra seems to have so much psychological sophistication around that point and really understanding that, that 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 an inter- a deeply held core wound belief that I'm not okay might be the only thing standing between me and realizing Buddha nature. So thank you for that talk. Thank you. You know, I I think you're right about that, and at the same time, um, I think there's I think there's skillfulness involved too. That um, we can't go from, you know, doing unethical things and and harmful things in one moment to suddenly saying, hey, wow, I'm Buddha. You know, there's a a turning of the mind, I think, that has to happen and a turning of the heart that has to happen. And um, so we, I think, I think we do have to, We've, we have to find some way of harnessing that and, and, and following some kind of, um, you know, ethical and moral teaching. I think, you know, we, we, we talk about, you know, kind of the, the three, you know, legged stool of, of prajna or wisdom, um, shila or ethical conduct and samadhi or meditation. And, and those three need to sort of work together to prop each other up. Um, but I guess I, I want to say also the the work you know that that of of the arhats toward personal nirvana wasn't in vain. It's just that when they when they get there and they and they hear this teaching, they realize like, oh, there was more. And we didn't we didn't think that there was more. So we wouldn't have even bothered to, to work on this because we wouldn't we wouldn't have thought that we could do this. We wouldn't have, we, we didn't understand this. But um, in through all the practice that, that they've done, they are ready maybe to hear that teaching. So thanks. I think that Ira is maybe next. Thank you. I'm, I'm Ira. It's, uh, it, it is pronounced E-E-R-A, but spelled I-R-A. Um, thank you. Thank you for your talk. Uh, I, I'm sitting here in California, and I attend work, work intensive with you. And... Um, but as I was hearing you talk about the story today, I there was a part, there's a sense that I have that the son is more passive, and it's the father who's being skillful, and um, 
So, I mean, he's showing up and he's doing the work, as you said. It's like he, the son is showing up, but the father is the one who's, you know, not overpowering the son. Uh, so, in some sense, I feel like there is an aspect of practice that's passive in a way. I, anyway, it, it, you don't mind commenting on that or. Sure. Well, that is what the son says in the end, right? Like through no work of my own, this is all this has been, you know, given to me. Um, but is, is that really true? I think the son, the son does work very hard, but he, but the son doesn't see the big picture. The father sees the big picture and the, you know, the father we could, we could say is Buddha. Buddha is reaching out to us. Buddha, Buddha is trying to help us to recognize Buddha's wisdom, but we don't see that big picture. Um, something that I've seen recently uh, that, that someone posted somewhere was a, a series of photos of celebrities um, standing with their their younger self like they've merged two pictures of a of a, a celebrity at a younger age and a celebrity at, at the at the older age and the older one is you know maybe putting their arm around the other one or, and um and i love this it, it, it's a, i love this this concept in this series of pictures because i love that the the old you know the the person the older version of the person recognizes the younger version of the person and probably knows them better than they know themselves. And the younger version of the person doesn't even know the older one exists, you know? And so there's, there are ways of knowing, you know, ourselves and each other that we can, can come to over time. And I, and I think that that's there too, that the son is doing what he, what he, what he's taught and what he's told to do, but doesn't see the bigger picture of that at all yet um and actually you know even in the end I, i'm not sure the son sees the bigger picture but um but you know but maybe he will later on yeah maybe it's almost like life keeps presenting these opportunities and in this case the son didn't turn away that he turned towards the invitation yeah yeah that's that came from somewhere within him. Yeah, yeah. He he rose to the occasion and he showed up, um, like all of us do. We we show up and we don't, you know, from from week to week or from moment to moment, we don't think, you know, hey, I'm on my I'm, I'm on my way to becoming Buddha. I'm better than last week. We 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 just we, we're just here, and as we continue to engage, we become more able to see, you know, our situation or more, more able to take responsibility for our life and, and our Buddha nature. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Um, I think that, I think that um, Tigan might be next and Tigan, maybe you have comments for some of these other questions. Well, I think others are next, but I'll just briefly, um, uh, comment on uh, two um, two kind of bodhisattva transcendent practices that you you've been talking about skillful means and effort 
So, um, and underlying all of this, so this is a parable about how all of us are children of Buddha. Uh, just from the beginning, we're children of Buddha. Or the fact that you're here uh, in, this, in this Zoom assembly means that you're a child of Buddha. We don't really believe it. Um, but you've been talking about the effort involved, the work. You've talked about the work involved. And, and both the father and son in this parable you know, are working at um, helping this child of Buddha to, to realize that she is a child of Buddha. Um, so, um, but the effort is something that um, it can feel like very hard work, years of practice and so forth. But also uh, there's this idea, uh, well, in, in Chinese culture of effortless effort. In some ways it's just showing up. Uh, so uh, both of them just show up in the story, the, the, the father and the son, the, the, uh, you know, we could say the teacher and the student in terms of uh, our practice, but just to show up and uh, engage. So as you were saying, it's about uh, Buddha and Buddha. It's about relationship. So just to be willing to show up is the basic effort. And then uh, sometimes we feel like we have to work very hard and that's, and that's fine, but uh, there's something that's there from the beginning. So you were saying this, but I just to, to, to qualify this sense of effort as something, um, you know, immense that one has to accomplish. It's already there. We just show up. In some ways, it's, it's natural. Uh, and that relates to skillful means, too. So that's another of the Bodhisattva Transcendent Practices. Uh, for the Buddha, you know, there's this assumption that the Buddha understands and knows uh, all of his children's, her children's uh, heart, mind. But um, uh, skillful means isn't about being, so for, for, but for Bodhisattva practice, skillful means as a practice isn't about being perfect. It isn't about getting it right. It's trial and error. So uh, we don't necessarily know what to do in a situation when we want to help someone or help some situation. Uh, but we pay attention. And so, uh, and, and the father in the story also wasn't sure what to do. First he sent people, he said, just invite the son in. And that didn't work. So <clears throat> there's uh, a quality of just um, making mistakes. Um, maybe sometime making the right mistake or being willing to make mistakes. But there's this kind of, steadiness of just showing up. So anyway, I just wanted to say that about skillful means and about, and about effort. And I think what uh, Joe Cutt brought up about faith, faith and trust, I think of as synonyms in Buddhism. It's just this conviction to keep showing up. It's not faith in something else. So anyway, I wanted to just add those things. Thank you. I, I, Tegan, I was just thinking about that um, when you were when you were saying it, that the, the father does make a mistake in the beginning in, as well. The father does something unskillful. Um, so we can take from that that, you know, Buddhas aren't perfect. None of us have to be perfect. And yet that I think that maybe um, speaks to part of Jokai's question of, um, you know, how do we trust when there is unskillfulness? You know, what, what do we trust? What do, and, and maybe, maybe faith is, is, is deeper than trust. We don't trust that a particular person will awaken, but we trust that there's, there's the possibility for awakening. There's the, the phenomenon of awakening and the, and the, 
you know, hopefully commitment to awaken. Yeah, commitment's a good word too, as a, as a kind of expression of faith. But I don't know, you said that the father was unskillful at the beginning. I think skillful means it's a continuum. Skillful means includes the unskillfulness. Yeah, well, he, that's, he's, he's self-correct, you know? So we have to keep. So we keep working at it. Yeah. <laughs> but all, but but as children of Buddha altogether. In order to walk anywhere, we always have to be a little bit off balance at any time. So thank you, thanks for the reminder. Um, I think Eve was next. Well, what the discussion about skillful means reminds me of. So, you know, I was in Florida. I came back, which seems dumb, but anyway, <laughs> like, okay. But so when I was in Florida, there were these iguanas all over the place. And and then one day, um, not long after I got there, so there was this big noise. And I look out the door and this big iguana is banging his head against the fence. You know, like he wanted to go right through it or something. And, but, but. You know, what I thought was, boy, that's a stupid iguana. <laughs> and I thought, iguanas must be really dumb. And and then, you know, he banged uh, was quite a few times, and then he decided to turn back and go the other way. But, but I mean, what strikes me now is, like, I was entirely too judgmental about the iguana. I mean, I do that, too. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of stupid things I do, like I said, like coming back to Chicago when it's freezing, but for some reason. But, um yeah, so I'm feeling now like, like I said, like I was too judgmental on the iguana, and that that uh, I I I take Tigan's point about you know trial and error, and 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 then you know forgiving yourself for banging your head on the fence. Well, right. So that's a great example because um, you could also look at the banging his head on the fence as how he realized that he needed to go the other way. Right, yeah. Well, and it woke me up. I mean, I was like, what's that noise? So so that's, life does deliver us those things of like, you know, okay, now I've done something. And But but that, that unskillful moment or that moment where we were hitting our head against the fence can be the moment where we realize, oh, I guess I can't keep going in this direction. I, I got to turn. I got I to gotta adjust somehow. I have to self-correct. So that's maybe goes back to Nicholas talking about, you know, um, unskillful, an unskillful moment is just a thing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just an event and we impose, we can impose judgment on it. And, um, you know, and sometimes it can result in harm, but it also, if we can use it as a moment to wake up, it can show us, you know, okay, try something different. Maybe that'll work. Thank you. Well, thank the iguana. <laughs> um, I think Dylan was next. So for this continuum of skillful means, I think um, we can take a cue from jazz musicians about this, where there's, um, you know, it's, it's an improvisational art a lot of times, uh, life, I think. And you have a certain, um, 
you you have like so in jazz music you have a structure there is a chord structure most of the time there's also free jazz but there's a there's a structure but you're the whether the music does anything a lot of time is dependent on trying to express yourself sincerely and and also at the same time exploring something that maybe you haven't explored before and that's where the music gets its life from um and you know, you have to be willing to make a mistake in order to play that kind of music. But um, when you, but sometimes what you think is the mistake is actually the doorway into a new genre of jazz music. Or you, if you play it too safe, if you play it too close to the chest and you never, and you always are staying um, in the safety of the structure that you know, then the other musicians around you are going to get frustrated that the, the music isn't cooking and that you're never, we're never going anywhere. Um, so sometimes playing it too safe is, is the mistake, the not making mistakes, the not the unwillingness to take that risk. If you're going to play that kind of music, that that's, that's the, um, that that's the mistake. Um, and, you know, you, they also talk about in jazz circles about laying out, which means sometimes the most effective thing you can do is not play for a little bit. And, and so that somebody else is doing their thing. Um, so there's that. Uh, also about Jokai's great question about faith and, you know, the disconnection between faith and, and skillful means. Um, I, uh, you know, it, maybe this is just re-saying what, what you and Tygen have just said, but what, I, what, what came to mind for me was that the faith has, gives, gives rise to dedication and that that dedication is the motor for the the cultivation of skillful means. That like that that's the, the dedication and the faith kind of uh, work together as the sort of the motor at the base of your practice. And then the cultivation of the skillful means is uh, is your activity. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Um, I don't I don't know if I have anything to add to that. Except that uh, maybe we should not be so afraid to make mistakes and not judge ourselves so harshly if we discover that we have made one, that, that that's part of the, the great risk of life. Thanks. Um, Patrick, I, you came back in the queue. Um, thank you so much for talking um so i was uh, thinking about right effort and um trust and faith and i feel in the beginning it's um you do kind of go through the motions until you have a better context to evaluate things and the thing that was coming to mind is um picasso and um we know him for all of his how he broke all the rules and created a new genre but he was he's a really good artist at painting portraits as well. And so he became, he went through all the lessons in the beginning and the basics and fundamentals of drawing and um, drawing people. And then at a certain point he was compelled to go in a different direction, but he understood what the rules were and, and the, the foundations and he took it to a different place. Um, and then that's what he's known for. Um, but in like one of his, um, in the Picasso museum, um, I'm blanking on the name, in Spain somewhere, uh, there's just, um, dozens of portraits that he drew 
prior to all of his expression ism and it was really and there's like a quote on the wall that he's like i'm actually a really good artist um when it comes to portraits but he's not known for that so it's that foundation and trusting and working through that and making those mistakes and then taking risks to create something new yeah and and combining i think he combined a number of different um aesthetic traditions Mm -hmm. Like I, I thought I had heard that, that he took um, some things from like almost like hieroglyphics to, to de- so that you could, you know, when, when you depict a person's face, you depict all the features, all the elements, but, but tried to combine them in a new way. So we could reject that as a mistake if we say that only photorealistic, you know, drawing is, is good, or we could say, you know, maybe there's something new here. Thank you. Uh, Brian has had his hand up for a while. Yes, I see Brian. Hi, Asian. Thanks so much for your talk. Um, you're hearing me okay? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I, I have a question, and, and this may be your answer, maybe, or your response, maybe somewhat um, colored by the work that you do as a therapist. And, and that is, uh, was it Erickson's uh, developmental theory that started with well, the, the first lesson that we learn in the first year of life uh, is that is whether or not the the universe is a trustworthy place, and and I you know I happen to have had a good mother or a good enough mother um, to provide that, and um, I know people who who didn't, and I would imagine that maybe ninety percent of the people who are in prisons had some kind of a trauma that taught them that life is not trustworthy. When we talk about uh, this basic trust or faith, uh, and learning that we are, in fact, children of Buddha and already awakened and, and all of that that you spoke about. What is that like for someone who uh, had early trauma or didn't... didn't I mean, it, it's natural for some people, right? I mean, it's always been natural for me to at least want to believe that <laughs> and to live into it, you know, to try to live into it. There are people for whom that's a very scary... Uh, proposition what you're talking about can you respond to that I don't know if I can respond to that Um, because I when I know people in a Buddhist context I don't generally know them in a psychological context so I I couldn't say Um, but I couldn't say about individuals, um, but the concept that you're bringing up that we, according, according to Erickson and, and others, that we develop a sense in our first couple years of life of whether the world is a trustworthy place um, and also whether we, can, whether we can trust ourselves is um, paramount. That, that, is a, that is a true... Um, theory. And it bears fruit in the lives of people that we, I think the most common example is, is people that we might consider sociopaths, people who have um, maybe kind of decided for themselves that I, the heck with anybody else, I'm just going to get what I need and, and that's it. They, they, um, don't care as much about relationships as just getting what they want. 
and um, and so there's a disregard for the needs of or or perspectives of others. Um, I think that that would make it very very hard for that person to participate in this, you know, Buddha together with Buddha, but maybe not impossible, you know. Um, we all can change over the course of our lives, and we all can respond to kindness. I, I see you petting your cat, and I'm thinking of my cat, who was um, fear, basically feral when we got her. She was not socialized to be with people, and she still, you know, nine years later, mostly thinks that we're trying to kill her. Um, but she can tolerate some kindness. And, and every morning I get up and I drink my coffee on, my, on the couch and she comes over to sit with me and she will, you know, kind of come on, you know, she just, she just, she doesn't really know what to do. She doesn't want to, she, she will never sit in my lap. I don't think she ever will, but she, you know, she'll let me pick her up and, and she likes that. And I think that those possibilities are true for everyone. Um, but that's a that's a, a, a really a, a skillful question for um, people who want to interact with other beings who are more fear-based and more, you know, you can't trust anybody or, or trust anything. Um, in that case, it is up to the person who's trying to reach them to find a way to be skillful with them. Um, you know, help them to not be afraid, not and not just you know go for the goods. Um, I think that any time we can move a situation in that direction towards peace and towards harmony and towards kindness is the Buddha work right there. We shouldn't judge that situation by the results. You know, thinking that we're going to get somebody else to change, to be the way that we want them to or have been taught they should be or think they should be, um, maybe that misses the point. Maybe it's all of these things are an opportunity to um, enact and and make compassion real in the world. Does that does that respond? It, it does. It does beautifully. It, and you're speaking from the point of view, perhaps, of someone who has some level of trust in the world, helping someone who doesn't. From the point of view of the practitioner who who has some level of trauma, let's say, who didn't learn trust as a as a child, the challenge seems to be exactly what you're describing, which is to try to find in life uh, trustworthiness, maybe through love or something else, which is the flip side of what you're talking about from the point of view of the person who's uh, been damaged that way. But thank you. That was a wonderful response. Oh, I, think, I know there are other um, therapists in, in, in this uh, room. Kathy, would you like to say something? Thank you. Um, I think it's a great question, and um, yeah, and as a therapist, it's something I think about a lot. But in terms of our our 
sangha. You know, I think our sangha in some ways is a holding environment. And that's a psychological term, but it has to do with trusting relationships. And I think the challenge for us, and it's very important, is that people who walk through the door who are not used to Buddhism or the practice, that they get a sense that it is safe here, that it is um, a place where they're allowed to be, and um, and the freedom to observe a little bit. So I think sometimes it means us being more tolerant of people who are not um, maybe following along as well or who need uh, particular things or who act out sometimes uh, and you have to use your judgment and, and all that, but it's being willing to, to get into the messiness of it a little bit or as much as you can do. Um, and um, I think when people experience other people caring about them, it can begin to build us an experience of trust. Uh, and that experience can be therapeutic. Um, anyway, I don't know if that is, that's a piece of it. Thanks. Thanks, um, for the reminder of trauma. And I love the concept of the Sangha as a holding environment, which is, is sort of a psychological, um, way of thinking about it. Um, that is, that is what we're trying to do for, for ourselves and for others is to create an environment where we can bring care. And, and, and part of that does involve understanding others and, and letting others help, our, help, help us understand ourselves. So it's a, it's a mutual thing. Um, sometimes we can use the, the metaphor of sangha as a rock tumbler where you know you polish stones by throwing a whole bunch of stones into a tumbler and just shaking them around enough so that they all polish each other and um and this can maybe be like that too there may be things that um you know i don't want to preference um i don't want to preference trust for or or faith over doubt and suspicion, because I think that doubt um, and suspicion have plenty to teach us too. You know, it, it's, it's, we're all always trying to find our balance. And some people are, are imbalanced in one way, and some of us are imbalanced in another way. We're all constantly trying to, we're not trying to, but we just are mutually inter, in, influencing each other. Thanks. If I may, I would just add that that questioning you're talking about, or even skepticism sometimes, is part of faith, actually, That to me. That uh, blind faith or just taking things on, you know, taking dogmas uh, because someone said so, uh, is not real trust or confidence or faith. So, that what you, so I would just include what you were just saying as part of a deeper faith, trust. Radical faith. 
Thank you. Anybody else have a comment? Rona. Thank you, Ajen. Um, I wanted to say about um, the the talk about the Sangha is, um, and you were saying we're hoping that uh, we're doing it. And I, well, what I feel is that you're definitely doing it because like this is, um, I think is like a great Sangha because I was a part of, a sangha for a year here in Israel, and it was missing the uh, acceptance that you have here. Um, I never heard someone criticizing me or telling me that I'm wrong or <laughs> that I shouldn't say something. So it does feel um, very accepting and um, I'm very, very grateful for everyone that's here and that uh, you're, um, that I'm able to participate, you know, uh, with uh, um, you very, very uh, good people. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. You are, you are part of the Sangha and part of the participation and contribute to the richness of our Sangha, as, as does everyone. It takes a group of, of people who are different in some respects, you know, to, that's, that's the whole, that's the whole thing is that we, we can't, otherwise, if, if everyone were the same, we would all wind up with the same blind spots. And so hopefully we can all together help us Look beyond our blind spots. So thank you for being here. Thank you everyone for being here. I think we might be moving towards the end of this talk, which might be coming up very rapidly. Um, any last comment? I think I, I maybe I'll just conclude uh, by expressing my deep appreciation to everyone for participating in what I've found to be a really, really rich conversation today, um, richer than the talk. <laughs> so thank you. I think, and I, I think we, we have really demonstrated, um, you know, Buddha going beyond Buddha as we talk together and, and explore these questions. I want to echo what has already been said about the importance of continuing to sit with these questions. These are, you know, that was what I, that was what I took away from my study of the Lotus Sutra was that everything is right here. And yet, you know, we can understand it on, on different levels and, and at different depths and different qualities at, at different times. So, so thank you for being here today. Thank you, Aishin, for a very fine talk and for leading a great discussion. And so, Singya, we could do the closing uh, chant now, and then after that, there'll be announcements. Okay. Oh, actually, 
Sorry about that. Uh, All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Ehe koso hotsu gammo ho. We vow together with all beings from this life on throughout numerous lifetimes not to fail to hear the true Dharma. Hearing this, we will not be skeptical and will not be without faith. Directly upon encountering the true Dharma, we will abandon mundane affairs and uphold and maintain the Buddha Dharma. And finally, together with the great earth and all animate beings, we will accomplish the way. Although our previous evil karma has greatly accumulated, producing causes and conditions that obstruct the way, may the Buddhas and ancestors who have attained the Buddha way be compassionate to us and liberate us from our karmic entanglements, allowing us to practice the way without hindrance. May the merit and virtue of their Dharma gate fill and refresh the inexhaustible Dharma realm so that they share with us their compassion. Ancient Buddhas and ancestors were as we. We shall come to be Buddhas and ancestors. Venerating Buddhas and ancestors, we are one with Buddhas and ancestors. Contemplating awakening mind, we are one with awakened mind, compassionately emitting seven and accomplishing eight, obtains advantage and lets go of advantage. Accordingly, Longya said, what in past lives was not yet complete, now must be complete. In this life, save the body coming from accumulated lives. Before enlightenment, ancient Buddhas were the same as we. After enlightenment, we will be exactly as those ancient ones, quietly studying and mastering these causes and conditions. One is fully informed by the verified Buddhas. With this kind of repentance certainly will come the inconceivable guidance of Buddha ancestors. Confessing to Buddha with mindful heart and dignified mind, the strength of this confession will eradicate the roots of wrongdoing. This is the one color of true practice, of the true mind of faith, of the true body of faith.
May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted "Ehe Koso Hotsu Gammon." We dedicate this merit to our ancestor, our original ancestor in India, Great Teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman and sister, great teacher Mahaprajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shandu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. The fulfillment of practice of all members of all sanghas. Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas. Wisdom beyond wisdom. Mahaprajna Paramita.